Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to have been co host for the number one morning sports talk show in Houston? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On episode 87 of The Bridge. <laughs> Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 24 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show on Thursday nights on iTunes under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. Nothing circles the wagons of the news quite like the National Football League, though positive stories have recently been hard to come by. Remember when the NFL was just known as the No Fun League? Here's a flashback to around this time last year when that was the case, when the NFL decided to take a stand on what could be posted on social media. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. Starting today, October 12th, 2016, in the year of our Lord, teams can no longer shoot video inside the stadium during the game and post it on social media. They also cannot use Facebook Live, Periscope, or any other app to stream anything live in the stadium. Teams are also forbidden from swimming in the pool until at least one hour after they eat, and cannot take highlights of what happened on the field and make it their own. Teams are also forbidden from posting highlights from television to their social media accounts. Highlights are also prohibited from being turned into GIFs. 
Apparently, league execs want to make sure that content within the stadium is only hosted to team websites so that the league maintains complete control over their content. Violations of the policy will cost teams up to $25,000 for the first offense, $50,000 for the second, and up to $100,000 for each additional violation of the policy. Thus, the punishment for sharing videos now will exceed the cost of illegal hits to the head. That ruling does not bode well for fans of social media. What's next, NFL? Eliminating memes? One does not simply post highlights on their team Twitter of their own team. Will the most interesting man in the world have to stop drinking beer? Will good guy Greg turn bad? Bad luck Brian turn good? Scumbag Steve become a contributing member to society? Will the overly attached girlfriend finally let go? The success kid find misfortune? The grumpy cat turned cheerful? How will Willy Wonka give us his wisdom? How will we know when winter is coming? How will we be able to accept challenges? How will we fix our first world problems? Harambe certainly didn't give his life for this. I'm John Lund for Sports News Red Like Real News. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. When we come back, we'll talk to a sports radio savant about his career on the airwaves and what he's up to now. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to the bridge 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know, who is your favorite to win this year's World Series and why? Now to this week's guest in Lance Zerline. He's an NFL draft analyst for NFL.com and longtime co-host of the number one morning shows in sports radio in Houston. Lance has football in his blood, to say the least, as his father is a longtime coach in high school, college, and currently in the NFL with the Arizona Cardinals, so that certainly helped pique his interest in sports along with getting into sports media, where he became incredibly successful on radio and was number one in the Houston market on three different stations. He announced in June that he would let his contract run out to focus on family and to focus on his NFL work, but you can still hear Lance on the podcast airwaves, which we'll get into throughout the show. Lance and I will chat about how he got into sports and the path to sports media, getting on the air in Houston and what contributed to his success in sports radio, a quick unretiring of some of his best impressions from those radio days, what he's up to now, and some thoughts on the NFL draft in 2018 and Houston sports now. You can follow Lance on Twitter. He's at Lance Zerline. That's L-A-N-C-E-Z-I-E-R-L-E-I-N. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. 
We're here with Lance Zerline. He's an NFL draft analyst for NFL.com and a sports talk radio guru that you can still hear on podcasts while he takes a little break from the airwaves. Lance, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing fantastic. It's a great time to be a sports fan, as I'm sure you know, with football underway, the MLB playoffs giving us excitement. So plenty to talk about on that regard. Before getting into that, I wanted to turn back the clocks a little bit to get started. For the listeners that don't already know, your father is Larry Zerline, who is currently the assistant line coach for the Arizona Cardinals at age 72. He's been a coach in high school, college, the NFL for more than four decades. What type of influence did that have on you growing up in helping getting you interested in sports in the NFL? Well, I mean, I I don't know. I my dad was a coach for as long as I've been alive and, and, uh, it was high school before college. And, uh, I've been a sports fan, you know, since the earliest I can remember, I don't know, three, four years old. So I, I it was just kind of normal in my house, I guess, I, no different than anyone else who grows up around a sports fan. Um, I guess people might think that I'm influenced differently and I, and, you know, I'm influenced in different ways about how I look at coaches and how I view the process and, just getting into sports and uh i'm probably no different than a lot of people who are sports fans who maybe had dads who were big sports fans and not coaches and listen to a lot of sports talk radio i remember listening to sports talk radio with my dad um you know when i was young and so i i was keenly aware of what coaches think about sports talk radio at some point you know from time to time and then um that that just got me started on the path of, of being aware of media. But I you know, like like a lot of kids. I want to grow up to be a baseball, basketball, football player, whatever the case may be. And and so I think that's very similar with a lot of people who grew up in a in a sports centric household, whether their 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 dad or their mom was a coach or not. I think uh, if you grow up in a house where sports is important, and that can be you know somebody who's a mail worker who just watches a ton of games then chances are the kids are going to be in that same, you know, in that same vein. So I don't think I was different than anybody in that regard, but it probably did shape me a little bit differently, you know, in some other regards in terms of trying to be more analytical uh, in my approach rather than just always emotional. What made you decide to pursue the media side of sports? And I know that got started with your handicapping service, Pigskin Sports. Well, I use that as kind of a side door to get into uh, on the radio and, and start and really it helped me a great deal with, with my radio presence with with learning how to deliver uh, my lines. I was pretty good at handicapping football and coming up with you know figuring out um, the value of teams on a on a, on every given week. It was just something I kind of had a talent for and something I learned when I uh, lived in New Orleans from a guy who was a, a guy who was a uh, his name was Pete Parmalee. He was a, a retired finance guy from a company called Freeport Neckman. I ran into him at the Sports Palace in, in New Orleans. Where I, used, I used to go to, to play pools, big pool hall there. And he kind of took an interest in me as a young college student. And uh, he just taught me some of the ins. And that's, for me, it was fun. I mean, it was like a puzzle you were trying to solve. And, and that's no different than when I do my NFL draft work. Now I'm trying to solve puzzles. I'm trying to put the pieces together to make a future projection. And so you know, I think that got me started more than anything on understanding future projections. And then, you know, that led into handicapping, handicapping. I realized 
I was always kind of an entertaining person when I was in junior high, high school, you know, I don't want to say class clown, but did the imitations of people and, and had some of that, uh, I guess, announcer type background and, you know, feel to, to what I did growing up. And, and so it wasn't until I really got into the handicapping side that I realized I think I have a chance to be pretty decent at radio. And I know that I know sports. I mean, I know sports left and right. I can talk any sports. And so that was really my, my entree into radio, was getting on the air, having PDs hear me, uh, specifically one here in Houston who was just starting the first 24-hour all-sports radio station in 1994. And um, I got a break there. He was, you know, he liked my handicapping stuff. He followed me. He gave me a break on a weekend show. And within two years, um, I had another break when a guy that I was, I was doing a lot of hustling at the time. So I was out of the TV show, a local sport, uh, you know, a local television station was doing that. It was like an off television, you know, television, not ABC, CBS, Fox. It was locally owned. I mean, John Granado was doing television shows, uh, sports talk shows at bars and restaurants late at night. And I, I went out and met him one time. He kind of liked me. He had me come on to do a fantasy football segment because he needed a guest. And one of his guests had uh, canceled at the last second. And so here I am, 20, whatever, 25, 26. I hustled out there and did a, a segment on television, did okay. He he liked me personally. We got to be kind of buddies. And uh, uh, before he knew it, he had an opportunity in morning sports talk radio. And, and uh, the partner he was going to have, with him, the guy that was going to do the show with him, he kind of bailed, and he and John said, "Hey, Vicky, who is the the, the program director and the general manager, uh, he's actually the GM, that program director." He said, "Why don't we, why don't we bring Lance on? You've got him in the weekend, you know him." So the conversation went something like, "He's going to be super cheap <laughs> and inexpensive," which I was at that time, and uh, and he said, "Okay." And before you know it, John and I, you know, really had good chemistry. Um, we the show took off. We had a, a huge following, and and uh, and the rest, you know, I, that set me on my course for what I what I did for over the last uh, twenty years. The rest is history, and listeners here, some of them assuredly know you from your radio days in Houston, and you have been paired with co-hosts along the way for several different shows throughout your career. How important is that chemistry that you're able to develop with your co-hosts in putting together a successful show? Well, I mean, if it's about successful shows, it's everything. You know, if it's going to be about cashing a check and just doing a show that's uh, a decent show and one that listeners can say, you know, this is a nice show to drive to work to. This is a nice show to drive home from. You don't have to have, I think you have to have good chemistry, solid chemistry. Um, but you don't have to have great chemistry if you're just looking to cash a check and do a solid show. If you want to have a great show, you want to have something that's fun to go to, you want to have something that, that, that gives you the higher highs and, and has people talking, you know, at their work or on Twitter, um, you need to have great chemistry. You need to have, and when I say chemistry, you don't always have to love each other or like each other or have the most fun, but you have to know what the other guy's strengths are and what your strengths and weaknesses are because chemistry is about fitting together the pieces, the strengths, you know, one guy is able to be strong in an area because the other guy fits with that, whether he backs off or whether he, you know, he can push the other guy to be even better. Um, that's what chemistry is about. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking chemistry just means you're best friends. That's not accurate. I was really good friends with, um, 
Matt Thomas, my last host, and we just we we had chemistry when I would I would come on his show, but then when we did a show together as as you know co-host, it wasn't the same chemistry. And so chemistry is really about allowing the other person to be the very best at what they are that they do well. Um, and then maybe taking up, the, I'm not a great interviewer personally. I have my moments where I can be pretty good, but my, na- you know, my, my nature, I'm self-aware by weakness is interviewing. And so, um, I've been lucky to be with some hosts who are, who are pretty good with interviews. So I think, you know, that's an important element as well as if you're weak in an area, having someone else who's stronger in that area. You had the highest rated morning show in the Houston market several times and did so on multiple stations. Was that chemistry with your co-host the driving factor to that? What led to that success to be able to have you get where you were in the morning show realm? Well, John and I had great chemistry. And so it was just a perfect fit. He was 10 years older than me. And so we hit to... We had a little bit different age groups, which which gave us broader audience. Um, it was that was really good chemistry, and that was some really great radio. I think the other times it wasn't always great chemistry, but uh, there were times where you know we hit we hit a stretch and a spell where I was doing the best radio that that, that I could do. I was in a good zone, and the co-host with me was in a good place and, and we were able to do that. So I think that, um, you know, being able to, and sometimes it's just a matter of how, you know, and sometimes look, sometimes it's where the meters are, you know, who's got the meters. It's a question of what the hot topic in sports are at that particular time, the, the hot team, baseball, basketball, football here in Houston, um, who's doing it the best, who's the most trustworthy on that. And, and are you able to balance and entertaining stuff along with, the serious sports. And I think those times that I was number one in the market, myself and my co-host, uh, whoever it was, we just did a good job of, of hitting that right balance. And um, it wasn't always because of great chemistry, but like I said before, I know for me, it was about me being able to do, in most cases, my best radio, which meant my co-host did a good job of allowing me to kind of perform because I'm an I'm an ADD personality. I, I kind of go all over the place. But when I'm on a roll, you know, if somebody will back off and let me do what I'm doing, it might be in a, for an entire month. It might be for two, three months in a row. Then results are going to be uh, pretty good. And likewise, I've got to recognize, you know, other people's strengths and let them, let them, I guess, move forward with, with what their lane is. What drew you to morning radio or what stands out as to what you enjoyed most about it from doing that for about two decades? Well, I mean, I, I, that's where I got my opportunity and I just stayed there. There was really, like, I didn't love waking up early in the morning. I liked it when the show was over earlier. That was great. But every morning there were, there were plenty of mornings over, over a 20 year run where I said, man, I don't know how much longer I can do this. I mean, I'm just constantly exhausted and, you know, you get addicted to coffee and, and, you, you you have that in the morning. You have a lot of it in the morning. Iced coffee, so you can just shoot that into your veins and and you pick up the pace and get going. But um, I, it wasn't a conscious choice. I mean, that's what I did for a living, so that's why I stayed. But I had one year where I did the afternoon show, got great rest, I got in good shape, was feeling healthy. But it just doesn't have the same energy as the morning. And so the thing that draws me to the morning, the thing that I like about the morning 
is that people that are the work, you know, you get a chance to entertain. And at my heart, I like to entertain. I can be serious. I can do X's and O's. I can do serious stuff. But I like for people to have a good time. And if they're headed into work, most people are headed to a place they really don't want to be. They would rather be somewhere else. So give them some fun on the way in. Coming home from work, it's winding down. It's a different atmosphere. Headed into work, I think, is a much more fun time. And it's, you know, that it gives you a chance to really be excited and, 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 and have more energy than in the afternoon. That's, that's how I see it. We know that Houston is one of the biggest sports markets for radio. And as years moved on, not only are you dealing with a local market and those around Houston in the Texas area, but then people were able to hear your show via the Internet, wherever they might be as as years went on. And of course, now hosting a podcast, they're able to do the same what was the biggest challenge for you in that market of Houston that you might have had to face throughout your career and how you might have been able to overcome that while you were going on? That's a good question, John. You're well prepared. I had to um, for you, Lance. You've, you've done so much. I couldn't just come in without knowing what I was going to talk about. Yeah. Well, I, you know, that's a really good question because I think one of the things, and this is going to sound a little bit strange, is that I'm not really a – I don't fit nicely and neatly into a box to where I'm just a serious baseball guy or my strength is just, you know, some people think it's just football, but the reality is I've done loads of imitations over the years. And so I've created characters and made up characters. And so for me, it was making, and, and I also have, I grew up loving sports around, around the country. It was not just, it didn't have to just be local. And so, and keep in mind, when I first started radio, the Houston Oilers, they were gone. So we didn't have, even have a pro football team. So I think starting off radio without a local football team, actually, with some people would think it's a challenge. It was the best thing that ever happened to us because it gave us a chance to really be us and not get, you know, too locked into the same topic over and over and over. We talked about Houston's a kind of a transient city and so we had people from all over the country who were calling about the eagles the jets the vikings lsu arkansas it, it really didn't we never knew what we would talk about on any given you know football phone call we were able to go in a lot of different directions at any time um but the challenge you know one of the challenges for me was being able to talk about some national stuff rather than keeping it hyper local which i think sports is much more hyper local now than it used to be um, because you have to play to the, you know, you have to play to the, the, the broad, broaden out the audience and, and really dumb it down. And so, um, you really have to be hyper local where in the past it was, can we get away with doing some stuff nationally that isn't hyper local? And then it was, how do I balance? And I didn't do a good job of it for the first six, seven months. How do I balance who I am, my personality, which is a bigger personality and more fun, um, a more creative personality versus coming on the radio as a 27 year old, which is extremely young at that time for uh, any drive time market morning or afternoon. And here I'm a morning drive time guy with listeners who are a lot older than me. You know, can I be taken seriously with sports and can I let my personality shine through? And it wasn't until after a conversation with my co-host John Grado in that December of uh, 1997, where he said, man, you got to, you got to be you. Like we were overthinking because our our general manager brought this guy named Ed Shane in, who was a radio consultant, and and, and Dickie didn't like 
you know, the things he was hearing about our show from his his friends over at Braver and Country Club. Well, they were, you know, frankly, those guys were all 60-plus-year-old guys. They weren't going to love a show being done by a 27- and 37-year-old guy with bigger personalities. It wasn't, they weren't really in our demographics. So Dickie made the mistake of listening to his friends, like, hey, this isn't how sports is. So this, this isn't what we're used to. And in the meantime, we've got this bubbling up of young audience and crowd that's really taking off. And we, you know, we're kind of being beat down by thinking that we're not doing a good job. And so, you know, that really had an impact on me. And it wasn't until I had that conversation with my co-host that he said, hey, you got to be you. You got to do the fun stuff. You got to do this. And once I trusted and just started doing this, everything really took off. And so um, I think that was the biggest challenge for me was just learning to be myself and not be, you know, a character or somebody who I thought people wanted me to be on the radio. Once I, once I was truly free to just talk into the microphone or around the microphone as myself and not trying to front as, as whatever I thought I needed to be, that's, that's when everything changed for the better. I'm sure it had to be interesting for you, and it's interesting in general just how sports radio has evolved over the years. Even in 1997, it's not like sports radio had been around for years and years. It was still fairly new, and especially as it grew to other cities where it wasn't as localized, it became something that more and more people obviously got used to. But for a while, when you first started, it was probably still something that not everyone was on board with. Flash forwarding till now, we've got social media, we've got platforms where people can listen to your show if they're up in Maine, even though you're broadcasting from Houston. Is there something that stands out to you, whether it's how much radio has expanded, whether how much the numbers and the advertisers now seem to drive radio? What's changed the most from when you started to where we are now? Well, I think it's the glut of um, sports talk, radio, and sports information. It's really, um, and this is, you know, and this is with everything. The more you get, the more you have access to, it seems like the dumber you get. I mean, a segment of the population is so much smarter now because they do access information. And, 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 and most times, the listeners, in many cases, the listeners know just as much. Some listeners will know just as much, if not more, than a sports talk host. That's absolutely true. And that was not true back when I started. It was rarely true. Because sports talk hosts, there, there weren't a lot of them. The ones who got to those positions were usually pretty good. There was nothing watered down because there wasn't a lot of sports talk stations. Definitely not stations, and and certainly there were a you know a minimal amount of shows. Uh, so you had very very talented or very capable people in those positions, and there wasn't as much information for the uh, you know for the average Joe. I mean, when they were working, everyone was everything had the newspaper. The it was newspapers. It was. It was uh, publications. The internet was just really coming out. So if you were hustling, if you were a big hustler, you could get that. But most people who had regular jobs, they weren't putting in that kind of work into sports. That was it was more their hobby, and they would watch games when the games came on. But um, now, I think because so many listeners, you know, feel like they know more than some of the hosts out there. Um, it's harder to attract those people in. They're they're not listening to to be educated. They're now listening for entertainment. And so I think a lot of hosts have to, that's where the, you always had the quote-unquote shock jock label, but now I think you have a lot of hosts 
who are looking, who are either going to be guys who try to do and say the outrageous things for attention and for hits, clicks, or listens, and you'll have program directors who play into that and who want you to, you know, let's get political, let's do this, let's. And so you have you have a group of I think radio in some markets has become how do we play to the outraged base either outraged on one side or outraged at the other side or how do we you know how do we how do we make the most access the the emotions of the the listeners and I don't think that's I don't I think that's playing into some of the negativity around what we see in the country now and I think sports talk radio has in a way delved into that because outrageousness um sells and we didn't we didn't see that in the past with sports talk radio you saw it in some form or fashion but now you know i think the numbers also the numbers game force you i mean we're talking about ppms have quarter hours so they can see ooh, this interview wasn't very good this quarter hour ooh, look what happened on this particular day and i think there will be a lot of program directors who really take small sample sizes and just run with it either on a you know, either on a positive or negative direction. And uh, I, I don't think that's good, number one, because the sample sizes aren't always accurate. And then number two, when you just play to the numbers, you have to understand that you're playing to the lowest common denominator. And I don't think anyone benefits from all programming that, that plays to lowest common denominator. No one wins. Everyone loses, except, I guess, advertisers. Before switching gears to what you're up to now, you've already mentioned that you developed several impressions and characters along the way of your radio career to include John Gruden, Wade Phillips, Philip Rivers, the fictitious SEC guy. I know you don't dust those cobwebs off very often, especially if it's not on the show, but I have to ask if maybe you have a favorite, not to make you do the impression, but if there's one that you enjoyed. Uh, I think Philip Rivers was a lot of fun. That was one that I heard him on. They had just beaten the Broncos. It was a Thursday night game. They had won the night before. I came in to do radio uh, that morning. Heard Philip Rivers' comments. You know, he had a full low tie on. He's just he's full Philip Rivers. And I never really thought about. It. He's on the set. He's kind of hoarse, and he's just so jacked up, and he's yelling and screaming, being excited. And I realized. I just took one crack at it and I hit it pretty good. And I realized, holy crap, I could do, you know, I could do a Philip Rivers imitation. So that day, you know, literally later that day, I'm on it. Man, I cannot believe we beat the Denver Broncos. I'm just out here wrecking Manning brothers, Eli, Peyton, you know, Trump gets up. Who's that? The other guy that the younger, the youngest Manning, whatever his name is, Cooper Manning. I pray he comes to see me one day so I can wreck him in a flag football game. So I'm just, you know, and I'm just, you know, and I realized, man, I am just, I've got Philip Rivers. I'm, I'm channeling Big Philly right now, and so I really was able to, to go in another direction with Philip Rivers. SEC guy was a lot of fun because it was basically poking fun at SEC fans. He was just an old, and the characters started off right here, just, and it was slow. And my and they weren't monotone so much as smarter than you, and had a, almost a foghorn langhorn sound to it. And over time, it got faster and sharper and quicker and more angry. And it was just yelling at people, and, and so that developed over years. But SEC guy was a lot of fun because everyone was in on it. I did it long enough that everyone was in on it. We all knew what the character was. There were layers that developed. He had a daughter. 
he had two daughters, two sons, a grandfather. It was, you know, all these different storylines going on. But nowadays, with everything being hyper-PC and people not really understanding the layers or the backstories, I just decided it just doesn't... First of all, I did the character for a long time, but secondly... I don't need somebody on Twitter hearing a soundbite and, you know, trying to blow up my whole career with NFL, like, you know, because they think it's some kind of racial thing. Cause it really is, it's just a character that was, you know, poking fun at SEC fans to an extent and, certain, and a certain brand of SEC fans, frankly, a lot of SEC fans like the character as well. So, you know, that was, that was fun because more than anything, I would get in that mindset and I, I was so quick with it. I could have conversations. I, I had entire storylines that were built up in my mind about SEC guys, so I really became the character. I don't even I can listen to old SEC guys uh, that I did, and I don't know how I came up with some of the things I was saying. I was truly like in character, which is a lot of fun to be able to to, to lose yourself and become another person when you're doing a character. That was that was really a lot of fun. Well, thank goodness for the mute button on my end, for starters, and thank you for <laughs> dusting that off the shelf uh, for a brief resurgence. I'm sure that listeners and fans hope that there might be a little bit more of those guys in the future. You did announce in June that you would not be renewing your radio contract to spend a little bit more time with your family and to focus more on the work you're doing for NFL.com. Was that a difficult decision for you to make, or was that something that you felt it was just time to do and time to switch gears a little bit in your career? Um, well, man, it wasn't super difficult. It was, I've been wanting to find the right time to do it, and that was just happened to be the right time because I could also work on some other projects. Um, it, it just gave me an opportunity to, to rest during the summertime to get some sleep, recharge. I had the same thing happen when I went from 610 over to 1560. I had to fight my contract. Uh, I was basically off the air for five months. But when I came back, I came back just with more energy and doing some of the most creative radio I had, I had ever done to date. I was also doing radio with a lot of friends and a very talented group. But, um, you know, I, I think that re the ability to recharge is something everybody in life, if you've been somewhere for a long time, uh, you know, two, three, four months off is if you can handle it financially, is fantastic because it really does give you a charge to to reset, to refresh, to get your mind right, to get some rest, and uh, and I, I that's I was really looking forward to that, and so it was a challenge at first, but there were some things that I didn't really like with the radio deal. Um, I wasn't really in a great place in terms of of thinking I you know, had great chemistry on the morning show, even though I was good friends with the, with my co-host. And I just said, you know what, now's the time to just take a little step back and, and take some time away and, uh, you know, and hit the reset again. And, and, and I don't regret that decision one bit. So you're focused now as an NFL draft analyst and content provider for NFL.com. And as we've also mentioned, you've been involved with football for many years now. So it's not like this is something that you weren't doing on the side and it's not something you're unfamiliar with. What is your job description of sorts now with NFL.com and what you're doing now? It's the same. I'm an NFL draft analyst. Um, I handle team needs. NFL teams. Um, I, I write some different articles during the college football season that are draft related. I handle 500 draft profiles. Um, I do 
combine broadcast. I do NFL draft broadcast. I'll do some television as well, uh, centered around the draft. So it's it's the same as it's ever been. It, nothing's changed. When it comes to the NFL draft coming up once 2018 rolls around, we usually see one, two, or three quarterbacks go quite early in the draft, usually the first pick. That seems to be the most important position now in the National Football League. But we've also seen a switch, in a sense, where running backs have been taken a little bit earlier than in the past. We saw that with Zeke Elliott, where teams aren't afraid now to maybe take a reach on a position that's often been viewed as something that you can find just with younger legs and not something that you have to take as early. Do you see the trend for 2018 leaning in that quarterback direction, or might it be something where we'll see a guy like Saquon Barkley get taken quite high as well? I don't see a quarterback up to this point that warrants a first pick of the draft, to be honest with you, and that includes um, Sam Darnold. So, uh, you know, I feel like Arden Key hasn't been the same guy. He's had injuries to worry about in the offseason. I mean, for me, and there's simply not a better player than, than Saquon Barkley right now. That's highly unusual to see a running back go one. But if you have the first pick of the draft, I'm, I'm really not sure what you're going to do. I don't see a Del Cal left tackle. I don't see a lockdown, big-time cornerback. And I'm talking about high-priority positions. And I don't see the quarterback that goes, wow, this guy's just really putting it all on tape and he doesn't have a whole lot of weaknesses. I don't see that from those left tackle, uh, defensive defensive end slash pass rusher, uh, quarterback, and cornerback. Those are three of the big ones. Uh, outside edge rusher, you know, that – I just don't see it. I don't see where the great players are coming from. And so right now, if Saquon Barkley were to come out, I mean, I, I don't know. I have a hard time saying he's not the best player. Now, you, do you want to draft a running back number one? You don't love doing that. And those guys have less of a shelf life than a lot of other positions. But then again, he's just so talented. He has so few weaknesses. He's, he reminds you of Ezekiel Elliott in that regard. And so, yeah, I think running back will go high. I think Saquon Barkley and Darius Geis both, if, if he comes up, they probably go higher. And I don't know. We thought this was going to be the year of the quarterback, but it's not really materializing as such. With Sam with Donald and Josh Allen and Josh Rosen, that's just, there's just a lot more questions and answers so far for those guys. Are you excited to have Deshaun Watson now leading the charge for your local Texans? Yeah, it's been fantastic, you know, and it's and it's different for me because I watched them throughout college because of the draft stuff. So when I watch guys in the pros, I, I have a backstory on them. I already have an opinion set on them, but I'm not, you know, I'm not above admitting when I'm wrong on an opinion. And I don't, I, I feel like I hit Deshaun Watson pretty good. I really do. I had a five nine eight on him, which is the equivalent of let's see, a chance to become a good NFL starter. I think he's still in that area. I don't think it's a lock that he's you know, great yet, but he's really put up some impressive numbers. I see some of the weaknesses and concerns that he's had in the past, you know, that he still has to learn to read defenses a little better. He still needs to make sure he doesn't, you know, fall back into bad habits mechanically where he ends up not driving the ball with his lower body and, and footwork not where it needs to be because it takes velocity off some throws, things like that, decision-making. But what I did see was a guy who could affect you with his feet and his arms from the pocket. I saw a player with tremendous leadership, high football character, 
all these things are coming into play for the Texans right now. And, and he's learning very, very quickly. And some of those guys can have those traits, but they don't grow in the NFL because they don't love it enough or, you know, something happens where they just, they just don't grow. And you see two quarterbacks, one Deshaun Watson and one Deshaun uh, Kaiser. And one guy has, you know, I felt like had very good mental toughness in football. Uh, character coming out in Watson, and the others, the other guy was questioned on that how how mentally tough he was. Deshaun Kaiser, both guys were thrown to the wolves, and up to this point, at least, one guy has done a substantially better job than the other guy. And that's one of the reasons I had the the bigger grade on Watson than than Kaiser is for that exact reason. So it's nice seeing a guy like Watson and his high football character and his productivity come into play. It's kind of like you know, Houston got that that two big big national championship, two back to back games, and the guy who won the national title in a huge game against the uh, an almost unbeatable foe. It's similar to Vince Young's past, frankly. Uh, Vince had the same path, and his city was just in love with Vince Young. He was from here, which obviously Deshaun Watson's not. But Vince wasn't as good a passer in the pocket. Vince didn't have the same football character and work ethic. And Deshaun Watson is like getting that guy with the big college pedigree and those winning ways and clutch moments, but having better ability in the pocket, having better football character and work ethic. And so it's almost like here you are a decade later and you're getting, um, you're getting kind of a guy that you wanted with Vince, but you're getting it with Deshaun Watson, a guy who can beat you with his arm or his legs. So it's, it's been a lot of fun up to this point. Right. He's giving the Texans fans hope, which has been something I think they haven't had, unfortunately, in the past couple of years. And he's making DeAndre Hopkins quite happy, which, again, has been something that I don't think he's had in the past couple of years as well. For the Houston Astros, do you think you'll be seeing them in the World Series? Uh, I think they've got a good I think they got a decent shot. Yeah, I do. Um a lot depends on if you just need two really good starters and either a great offense or a great bullpen. And they have a great offense and they have two really good starters. Can you still get the same out of Verlander and Keuchel? We'll see. They've got some all cards like Lance McCullers, who was incredible earlier in the year, but not as good certainly now. Just has rounded back in the form. Kravinsky is the same thing from the bullpen. Um, I don't know if Ken Giles is the guy that I trust yet as a closer, but their offense is so good, they put themselves in position to, to give themselves some leeway. So, yeah, I think right now I would say they have a a, a better-than-average shot of getting there, especially, and I know we're, we're taping this, but especially if the Yankees move on instead of the Indians. I think the Indians are a tougher matchup for the Astros. As a Yankees fan, that's unfortunate to hear, but I, I can't disagree <laughs> with you. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, you know, the, the numbers, the numbers. Right. The last thing for you, as we've mentioned, listeners can hear you talk about both the Texans and the Astros still uh, every week or so now with your podcast off the script. How would you describe what that podcast is? Maybe what's different from what you've done on radio or what listeners can expect to find should they tune in? Well, it's, it's mostly at this point, I'd love to talk about everything, but I know that where my friends buttered, so I'm kind of staying more local with Astros and, and Texans and Rockets. But we venture into to non-sports territory, uh, more fun stuff. Uh, we will venture into some, some national sports stuff as well. But like I said, it isn't always that. Eric Layden, who's an actor who grew up a Texas uh, Houston sports fan, 
big time. I mean, not just a sports fan. He knows the teams. He follows the teams. Um, he's one of my co-hosts, uh, except when he's in the middle of shooting, where, you know, where he's unable to, because of his schedule, unable to host. And then I have uh, a guy who's one of my best friends, Chris Solis, a guy who really does a good job of getting the best out of me, someone who I find just extremely funny. He's very dry and sarcastic and has great wit, and it just it, it's just a good... It's just a good compliment to what I like to do. He's one of the co-hosts. And I find, you know, so far I've had two different producers I have had at 790 in the past who I get along with great. They sit in as co-hosts um, as well as, obviously, Eric Layden. So we, we've had a really good time. It's fun. It's, it's uh, you know, some, some bad words are said, which you don't get to do on the radio. I think, it's, I think I'm just getting that out of my system after 20 years, almost slipping here and almost slipping there. But um, it's that's really what it is. It's more Houston focused, but it's a lot of fun. We had 15 minute segments on Game of Thrones, and, and we always worked it back into sports and some fun stuff as well. So that's kind of how the show is. It's pretty free form, and it is really just guys talking around the microphone. It's not a show so much as just three guys having a really fun time. And can we still expect the Lance, Lance, and Lance show to be something you'll be doing in the future? <laughs> I think there's a I think there's a chance here once uh, this season is over and that that's going to take a little time. So getting McCullers back on board um, once the season's over in Lance Berkman, I think could happen. We'll we'll see. I, I hope so. That's a great tease for all you loyal radio listeners that that might be something we can hear in the future. Well, Lance, thanks so much for taking some of your time to jump on my show and give a little behind the scenes look at what you've been up through throughout your career and what you're up to now. Tons of great insight from your radio days and definitely looking forward to what you continue to do with the podcast and what you're also doing with NFL.com. And I know your family is going to certainly keep you busy just like the airwaves do as well. So there'll never be a dull moment with what you're doing and what you will do. But thanks again for your time. I really enjoyed it. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thanks again to Lance for jumping on the show. We'll now jump into another segment of The Toll Booth with Donnie Wrightside. Donnie is a professional handicapper who knows a thing or two about the lines of the sports world and will be joining the bridge for a weekly segment to help us get on the right side of those lines. Donnie will offer up some of his bets bets to correspond with the bridge fade of the week where listeners are urged to completely go in the opposite direction of what the show picks a pick that we will get into now for the upcoming weekend with the line set as of the recording of this show. The bridge fade of the week is the New York Jets. The tied for first place in the AFC East New York Jets, getting 10 points at home against the defending Super Bowl champion New England Patriots. Now to someone who actually knows what he's doing, you can find Donnie at DonnieRightSide.com and at SportsBookReview.com and also follow him on Twitter. He's at RightSideVP. And remember, this segment is for entertainment purposes only. Without further ado, this week's edition of The Toll Booth with Donnie Wrightside. Has anybody got a dime? Oh, yeah. I don't have a dime. Somebody's got to go back and get a shitload of dimes. Oh. Hey, folks, Donnie Wrightside here from sportsbookreview.com and DonnieWrightside.com coming to you here on The Bridge. 
We went across the toll booth this week. We might have to dip in, however, to our credit card or maybe a debit card because we don't have much loose change going 0-2 on the show last week completely. Completely unacceptable out there. Coming off a week where we were 2-0, and this week we're going to try to cross that bridge, pay the toll, have some extra money left over for some beers, pizza, and steak, whatever you wish to purchase. Why don't we get started today? We're going to go 1-1 one and one this weekend in college football and in professional football, hopefully for a 2-0 and weekend to try to fill up those coffers again and have some extra money laying over as we head into next week. Why don't we start off with college football, folks? 10-14, Saturday, 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Rotation 133-134. That's going to be North Carolina and Virginia. The Cavaliers coming into town. What happened in North Carolina out there this year? Well, most people don't know. Sitting on a 1-5, headed for what I think is going to be a 1-6 uh, at the time of taping here, opening line at Pinnacle was minus 3.5. Bet online showing 3.5 right now. The Greek showing 3.5. So we're going to go with that prevailing line right now and take the Virginia Cavaliers minus 3.5. Having a nice season so far. Only trip up for them was versus, excuse me, versus Indiana, a 34-17 loss. Beating William & Mary 28-10. Connecticut 38-18. Boise State, a nice win on the road on the blue turf, 42-23. And beating the Duke Blue Devils last week, 28-21. Talking about Carolina, losing to Cal, losing to Louisville, losing to Duke, Georgia Tech, and Notre Dame in mostly blowout fashion in the last two games. I don't think they're going to be able to stand up in this football game. Virginia's a team on the come. Bronco Mendenhall has the boys looking good, and obviously a laundry list of injuries for the North Carolina Tar Heels in this one. So why don't we go ahead and play in the Virginia Cavaliers at minus three and a half. Let's flip it over to Sunday, folks. The NFL, 273-274. We're going to go to a Sunday night football game starting at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And that's going to be the New York Giants and the Denver Broncos. You say, why, Donnie? Why are you going to pick this game? I watch the Giants. They're a terrible football team. I get it. Sometimes you can find some value in some games where some teams technically aren't very good. If we look at this game, we're actually going to take a side in this one. It's up to about 11 and a half, 12, depending on where you're shopping at. We're going to lean towards the under 39 and a half in this football game. And the simple fact is with the New York Giants, their offense was struggling as is. You lost four wide receivers last week. Obviously, Odell Beckham Jr. going down as well as Brandon Marshall. Sterling Shepard getting nicked up. He's not anticipated playing in this one. So you say, what is going to happen here? What, you're going to lean on Roger Lewis, Tavares King, Travis Rudolph, and Ed Egan. No, these guys aren't just random guys pulled out of a phone book. They are actually football players that are going to be starting this week. The problem you have also with the Giants, where are you going to get the motivation from? Who's going to block and keep Eli Manning upright? I don't see very many points in the Giants' future. And conversely, if you look at the Denver side of the football and offense, they're not going to have to do too much to beat the Giants as anticipated today. So we're going to lean on the under in this one. I do think Denver's going to win this football game, but no real pressing need unless Eli Manning throws five pick sixes, which, hey, he could do it any moment here, but we're going to lean on the under in that situation. Looking at the Giants coming in this football game, sort of a last stand. Everybody got banged up versus the Chargers. You lost at home, ended your season 27-22. Coach McAdoo looks like he's going to be on his way out. Dominique Rogers Cromartie, excuse me, Dominique Rogers Cromartie was suspended and uh, indefinitely, so we don't even know who he's when he's going to get back. Who's going to be healthy? Who wants to play anymore? Denver, if you want to say, hey, you know, Giants can lean on their running game, right? Wrong. 
Not a very good offensive line. And if you take a look at the rush defense from these Denver Broncos, 24 yards, 75 yards, 40 yards, 64 yards. You can't run the football. On the ground. I mean, hey, Dallas, Ezekiel Elliott, great football team, great offensive line. They ran for 40 yards at Denver. Let's lean on the under in this situation, folks. Under 39 and a half. So if we recap today, we're going to go over two games, one in college football. We're going to take Virginia minus three and a half. We're also going to take an NFL action. The New York Giants under the posted total of 39 and a half. I'm Donnie Wrightside for Sports Book Review and also DonnieWrightside.com. Thanks for listening in, and let's cash some of those tickets for you this weekend. See you next week, folks. Left side! Strong side! Left side! Strong side! Left side! Strong side! Left side! We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and host for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it, so he now holds the reins to this segment. And don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better breakdown of what will be in store if you do so along with joe's final rating of the film compared to something in the sports world this week joe will break down american assassin which rotten tomatoes describes as the rise of mitch rap a cia black ops recruit under the instruction of cold war veteran stan hurley The pair is enlisted by a CIA deputy director to investigate a wave of apparently random attacks on both military and civilian targets. Together, the three discover a pattern in the violence leading them to a joint mission with a lethal Turkish agent to stop a mysterious operative intent on starting a world war in the Middle East. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupof-joe.com. Again, that's cupof-dash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. And without further ado, here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film. When I saw the trailer for American Assassin, I was pretty excited. Dylan O'Brien, the star of the Maze Runner films, looked as though he was trying to break out, taking on the physicality of the role that not all actors strive for. If you remember my Spider-Man Homecoming review, you know how much I like Michael Keaton, and he serves as O'Brien's mentor in the movie. It's a revenge flick, which is also right up my alley. So all the pieces were in place. But then the trailer ended, and the release month flashed on the screen. September. Oh no. Although we had American Made and It come out in September, the month is usually weak in quality and box office, as it is in between the summer and Oscar movie seasons. Could American Assassin break the mold? Let's go to the tape. This is the second straight movie I saw that has American in the title. The difference between the two? American Made is very good. American Assassin... Not so much. But that doesn't mean it is without merit. 
Clearly this was not going to be a highbrow film. I knew that going in. Usually when a movie has a singular basic focus, I want to jump right into the action. American Assassin did just that, as it starts with a massacre on a beach. O'Brien's character, Mitch Rapp, proposed to his girlfriend, and a minute later terrorists stormed the beach with AK-47s and ripped its patrons to shreds. This is the best scene in the film, as the director utilizes longer takes with limited cuts. Rapp runs back toward the ocean to save his fiancée as people run and get picked off alongside him. He gets to his fiancée, but it's too late, as she is gunned down right in front of him. What I found pretty effective is that our main character, Rapp, gets shot a couple times. Normally, you know the lead isn't going to get hit with bullets, that he or she will be fine, but Rapp is really running for his life here. It was pretty impressive, and it keeps you on the edge of your seat. You also understand his motivations for the rest of the film, because you just lived it. So you're pumped up, you're strapped in, you're ready to go. You're reaching the top of that roller coaster, but after the rise comes the fall. American Assassin never again approaches the level of that opening scene as it devolves into a run-of-the-mill assassin film that every once in a while steps up its game. What bothers me most is the characters. They have no arc, and it's such a waste because the quality actors are there with O'Brien, Keaton, Taylor Kitsch, and Sanaa Lathan. I understand that after the death of his fiance, he becomes emotionally detached, but it works against the film. As I said many times, O'Brien has talent, but robbing him of emotions makes him into a wall or a lamp that you throw in the corner. All of a sudden, your main character is uninteresting, and he never bounces out of that, and he never grows. There's a specific theme that you just wait for him to fulfill, but it just doesn't happen. Keaton, Kitsch, and Lathan are much of the same. They are characters we have seen before with no depth as the movie switches to autopilot. I do enjoy the action and some training sequences as O'Brien learns the craft of becoming a top-tier assassin work. One is a pretty cool virtual reality session where an interesting idea is explored that could have led to a pretty good character-building moment, but again, it's wasted as nothing comes of it. The bottom line, I can't say American Assassin let me down. All the signs were there that it would be a subpar film. But when the opening sequence is a perfect set for the rest of the movie, and then the following acts spike the ball into the net where it falls harmlessly to the hardwood floor, it leaves you wondering what could have been. The pieces were there to make it a strong action film, but ultimately the talent was wasted. There are some good moments here and there. The action is, for the most part, solid, and that opening scene quickly gets you on board with the film. But American Assassin slowly kills any chance of you rewatching this movie as it introduces bland character after bland character until the movie ends with the characters in the same places they started the film. I'll rank American Assassin as Eddie Lacy. Although he jumped out of the gate strong, earning Offensive Rookie of the Year honors and a Pro Bowl selection in 2013 to build the expectations of Packer fans and fantasy owners, he has regressed ever since. Sexy. Check! Uh, check please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Thursday night. And also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. 
You can also find the Bridge Sports Podcast on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on TuneIn. And also search for Sports Radio America on the TuneIn app every Wednesday to listen to the show live. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive back into Major League Baseball, dabble in the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.